It's Monday, October 28th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. President Trump announced on Sunday that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the Islamic State leader, died during a military operation by Delta forces in Syria. The president described al-Baghdadi dying like a dog and a coward, saying he retreated into a dead-end tunnel with three of his children and detonated a suicide vest, after which the tunnel collapsed. Special forces conducted a DNA test to verify the remains. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this news and the latest from the impeachment inquiry. Next, as scientists continue to work on getting lab-grown meat to have the right texture and taste, they're taking their latest cues from cotton candy and literally spinning up meat fibers. They're spinning up thin strands of gelatin that mimic muscle fibers, which could be the next step in getting lab-grown steaks, chicken, and pulled pork. While ground beef and chorizo can be made just fine, it's still going to take a lot of work to replicate a steak. Matt Simon, science writer at Wired, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The United States brought the world's number one terrorist leader to justice. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is dead. He died like a dog. He died like a coward. The world is now a much safer place. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. President Trump on Sunday announced that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, he's the elusive Islamic State leader, died in a U.S. military operation in Syria. He's the one responsible for taking ISIS from this small band of fighters to this whole thing that, you know, that he created the caliphate. So he has been killed now in a military operation. Ginger, what do we know about how this all played out? From what we understand, U.S. forces, uh, Delta forces, were able to get into the compound where al-Baghdadi was. Once inside, they were able to track him down. There was sort of an, a fire exchange with some of his sort of security or, or protectioners there. And he was killed not by our forces, but with exploding suicide vests that were detonated that two of his wives who were with him were wearing. The president actually detailed this uh, with, with a lot of detail. He said that he ran into the tunnel. He had three children with him also. And the, t the tunnel collapsed on them and uh, our forces had to take DNA tests and confirm that it was actually him, but that they got it all done. And he, the president said he died like a dog, died like a coward running away into that tunnel. That's right. The president was pretty graphic in his description of what happened and really painted this as a victory for U.S. forces who were facing a, a tough situation and were still able to ensure that this leader of a really dangerous terrorist group for so long was killed. And now, how important is this death? Obviously, he's one of the main commanders for ISIS and everything. But for the president, he was, yeah, I think at one point he said, hey, this is probably bigger than even the killing of Osama bin Laden. I'm not sure if it's bigger than the killing of Osama bin Laden. President Trump may hope that we all believe so, but it is a huge killing by U.S. troops. ISIS is weakened at this time. They have suffered quite a bit of damage. And with the U.S. leaving parts of Syria, there was a lot of concern that they could regain some of the strength that they once had. This could work to deter that and keep them weakened, if not uh, eventually lead to their total destruction. So this is a big deal in getting rid of a group that has been responsible for the deaths of just so many people, both in that region and through attacks in Europe and in the United States. 
What does this do for the U.S. right now? We've been talking a lot about Syria and Turkey and the Kurds and everything. This operation took place in Syria also. What does this do for our standing there now? Well, President Trump has very badly wanted to get U.S. involvement out of that region, get U.S. troops out of that region. This may prove to help him in pursuing that goal. However, as he has realized and his attempts to get the troops out of that area uh, have really bedeviled him and he's not been able to do so, it's much more complicated than that. There's still a good deal of fighting. There's still a good deal of regional issues. And just trying to leave in a fell swoop would be very difficult. Yeah. And some reports are even saying that we might have to protect uh, the oil fields out there. So who knows what kind of escalation could result out of that. Let's move back closer to home and the impeachment inquiry that is also going on. While the president has a victory on this front with the killing of al-Baghdadi, still facing a lot of pressure at home on the impeachment inquiry. Republicans, for their part, last week we saw this big dramatic thing where they stormed one of the uh, impeachment uh, meetings. The Republicans have been saying that this process is taken out of the public view. Why is it so secretive? What are we hearing about that? We're getting a lot of, as you said, process arguments from Republicans against the process and procedures that Democrats are using to go about this impeachment investigation. What Republicans are saying is that it should be done out in public, that it should not be done in private or closed door sessions. Democrats, for their part, say, look, they're dealing with highly sensitive classified information, that they're dealing with foreign policy and that the methods of uh, intelligence and that it needs to be handled, at least from the beginning behind closed doors and that once they've established what happened and they're able to get this information, they'll be able to take it out into the public and hold public hearings. But for the time being, for safety and security reasons, it needs to be held behind closed doors. And Adam Schiff has said that he hopes to take it public at some point. And Republicans that stormed that one meeting in pretty dramatic fashion, you know, there are Republicans that are allowed in these impeachment inquiry hearings. If they're sitting on those committees, they're allowed in there they, uh, and their staff members. That's right. This isn't being conducted entirely by one party. Republicans aren't being left out. Members of the three committees that are involved in this investigation can all go into this testimony. They all have access to the transcripts where they're able to read about the testimony. If they're not able to be there themselves, their staff is able to be there. So Republicans have not been shut out. What I think we're seeing here is them having a hard time coming to the defense of the president for a multitude of reasons. One, because they're still figuring out what happened. And two, because some of the things are, are irrefutable. The president's own staff are describing things that Democrats are criticizing. So instead of arguing, oh, you know, that call to Ukraine was perfectly OK, we see them arguing about process. And you're never really winning if you're arguing about process. <laughs> right. And that leads us to this final part here. Let's recap just a little bit of the testimony that we heard from last week. Uh, we're expecting to hear a lot more stuff this week, obviously. But uh, Gordon Sondland, who was the ambassador to the European Union, he testified and his lawyer was speaking out saying that he basically told the investigators that there was a quid pro quo in uh, pressuring the Ukrainian president to start these investigations. That's right. From what we understand, Gordon Sondland told the committee, both through the release of his opening remarks and remarks from his attorney, it was really damning testimony for the president. He said that he understood this to be a quid pro quo, that it was very clear that that was what was happening and that the president was directing all of this, that he was personally trying to see that the Ukrainians were pressured to provide the what he wanted, which was pressure or some public embarrassment of the Bidens in exchange for U.S. federal aid. The other news is that John Bolton, the former national security advisor, seems to be popping up in a lot of people's testimony. 
Adam Schiff says that, you know, he wants to get him before the committees to testify also. He's kind of up in the air, though. Nobody knows how much he he will actually say if they bring him in. That's right. We have um, understood testimony of a couple of folks who remain close or supportive of the president that included a lot of I don't knows and I don't remembers, and they could potentially just refuse to testify. The White House, the administration has told those who it has some iota of control over to not testify before these committees. Some of them have ignored him and and done so anyway. But Bolton could say, look, this is executive privilege. I work for the president and you can't make me testify. So it's still to be seen if he would even show up. And the last thing, Democrats on Friday got a a court victory. A judge ordered the Justice Department to give the House secret grand jury testimony from the Robert Mueller Russia investigation. Everybody just was kind of saying, well, this just proves that the impeachment inquiry is legitimate itself. This judge ruled on Friday that the Justice Department needed to turn over unredacted versions of some of the grand jury information and some parts of the Mueller report. And Democrats said, look, this shows that the third branch, the one that's supposed to be the referee in these disagreements, is siding with us and thinks that our inquiries are legitimate and that we are not doing anything wrong by investigating the president. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That uh, start spinning, throwing out these long, thin fibers of gelatin. Uh, and when they gather them up, they can kind of form it into these long, almost steak-like patties, really. And when they test it, they can actually show that this has the same texture of beef. Joining us now is Matt Simon, science journalist at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Matt. And thanks for having me. One of my favorite subjects for a while now has been this whole thing about lab-grown or cultured meat. A lot of people think it could revolutionize food production, giving us a more greener, more sustainable alternative to large-scale meat production. But getting to that perfect meat analog is pretty tough, specifically how to make it taste and feel more like real meat and then making large amounts of it. It's pretty expensive to do what they're doing even just now. But right now, researchers at Harvard have grown rabbit and cow muscle cells that really do mimic the texture and consistency of meat a little bit more. And the way they're doing it is kind of interesting. It's kind of like spinning cotton candy in a way. Matt, tell us a little bit more about this. Yeah, it's uh, uh, maybe a rather more horrific way of of spinning cotton candy. Uh, It involves what is essentially a supercharged cotton candy machine. That's actually where these researchers took the inspiration. Uh, Only instead of spinning sugar, they are spinning gelatin derived from pigs. Um, So what happens is they submerge this spinner in uh, a bath of ethanol, and that uh, starts spinning, throwing out these long, thin fibers of gelatin. Uh, And when they gather them up, they can kind of form it into these long, almost steak-like uh, patties, really. Uh, and when they test it, they can actually show through you know, industry standard instrumentation that this has the same texture of beef um, or a steak. And what's uh, a little bit different here is that this is an uncooked piece of beef. Uh, that is another huge problem, as you had mentioned all the problems previously, that uh, you know, when you 
develop these meats, you have to worry about, first of all, what it's like in its raw form. You can't throw people off by looking weird or smelling weird. But then you have to nail the transformation from cooked or excuse me, from uncooked to cooked, which right. is a whole other problem. Um, it is a big hurdle. I think we won't be seeing this for a long time, but this is a really interesting first step toward actual 3D cultured meat as opposed to a ground beef that you would culture in a dish. And that's the important part of it is these long strands of fibers. For anybody that's thinking of when you cut a steak, you can kind of see these long strands of fiber or when you pull pork or chicken even, it kind of breaks up into longer strands and that's really what they're trying to mimic as you brought up the ground beef or something. That's something that they can kind of do already, but it's a mush of meat. So, you know, it doesn't have the same form as these strands do of these fibers. And that's the important part right there. It is. And, and you know, what they are actually able to do in the lab already is to do, you know, chorizo or ground beef, the stuff that has very little structure. Um and even then, it's an extremely expensive process, though, because a lot of times they're using uh, animal growth serums, which are expensive in and of themselves. And to actually have to scale that up is going to take quite some time to bring the price down. So this advance is interesting in, in that it really replicates the way that a muscle is situated inside an animal. So you have these long strands, as you had mentioned. Um, and, you know, muscle cells are unique in any animal in that they grow in these long fibers. Uh, so you get, as you'd mentioned, that that pulled pork consistency. So, uh, but again, you know, it, it might be entirely different from, you know, how they have it now. And they actually also weren't able to taste it because it's not a food safe lab. But as it is now, and it's kind of it's a raw form, quote unquote, if you can call it gelatin uh, raw, is very much different from how it'll look when cooked. Um, but they were able to, as you mentioned, get these cow and rabbit cells to propagate along these lines of gelatin, which is really a step toward, you know, giving this kind of cultured meat an actual structure in a 3D form, um, which if they can do it is is perhaps going to not upend the meat industry, but, but certainly put a, a dent in the way that we consume meat. The researchers at Harvard did supply pictures of what this looks like and some video also. Uh, if anybody wants to check this out, you can go look at Matt's piece on Wired. You have a bunch of stuff there. Describe to us a little bit of what it looks like because it, <laughs> it doesn't look very appetizing in the way it is. And just to be clear, we're still a long way off between this lab-grown meat, lab-grown steaks and things like that are ready for people to start eating. They, they have to go through a lot of processes to get there. We're witnessing this happen on the way. So describe a little bit though what it looks like because it looks, as I said, not very appetizing. You are absolutely right, uh, right there. Uh, it is, if you can take a look at the story, it's a basically a white sheet. Um, yeah. And they, we have a, a gif in this story of one of the researchers kind of pulling it apart. And it does seem to have kind of that not gooey, but almost stretchy consistency of a steak. You know, if you pull yeah. on two ends of a steak, it's it's not going to snap, um, but it's also going to give a little bit. And that's, that's what they've nailed here with gelatin. And actually, when you think about the way that meat is structured, uh, it's the, what gives it that form is uh, collagen. And that gives kind of, a, it's a, sort of a scaffolding around the cells builds it up into these nice firm muscles. Um, and gelatin is actually a form of collagen, uh, the gelatin they're using here in these 3D printed muscles, essentially. So when you are slow cooking something like pork, 
what happens is that collagen is breaking down into gelatin, which is a much more tender form of collagen. So what they have here is, you know, in and of itself, a pretty tender steak. Um, but, you know, again, what happens when they cook it is to be seen. <laughs> right. uh, and then you have to also think about, you know, a, a piece of meat isn't just about the muscle fibers. It's about the fat that gives it all that flavor. So when you're going to see in the future people replicating these muscles in uh, steaks or, you know, chicken breasts and things like that, they have to be able to incorporate connective tissues and pieces of fat and things like that. Because the problem here is you have to nail it 100%. You can't come up a little bit short and people start thinking, this tastes a little funny or it feels a little bit funny. It's going to be kind of an uncanny valley of food um, in the same way that we look at humanoid robots that are really realistic but not realistic enough. It freaks us out. We'll see the same thing with this sort of 3D printed food in the lab and it's going to take so much work to nail not yeah. only the flavor but the smell that comes off of it when it's raw and when it's cooking, that sort of thing. It's a, it's a huge challenge but this is certainly... Uh, you know, I've spoken to some uh, people in the industry that this is a pretty big step toward getting toward more, you know, 3D versions of meat as opposed to this ground up stuff in a Petri dish. And it really seems like researchers and even food companies are really willing to put the time and effort into doing this. As we said, you know, we've been following kind of the progress of this and they can make the lab grown cultures of the meat cells. They're doing this now where they're able to make these large fibers step by step, they're kind of getting there. And I really do love the way you started your piece with this kind of drawback to this scene from The Matrix when one of the characters, his name is Cypher, is eating dinner with Agent Smith and he's eating a steak and saying, hey, I know this doesn't exist. I know it's The Matrix telling me, but after all this time, ignorance is bliss. And to a point, ignorance is bliss when learning about these things. I just think it's so interesting to follow the story and the progression of it. But some of this stuff can get a little nasty. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's weird. It, it's like iterating on software. So, uh, you know, the Impossible Worker did this as well. They started by going to plants to find individual components that might replicate something in meat. Uh, what's really fascinating there is that they can make, you know, Impossible Burger 1.0, but then go back and iterate on those ingredients, find something that's a little bit better, uh, time after time, you know, generation after generation to build um, what is essentially software and hardware that goes in our mouths. And you'll see this also with these, uh, you know, meat actually grown in the lab, the actual kind of meat coming from animal cells is that they're able to iterate more and more to get us to that point where we get past the uncanny valley. And, you know, this is an, an increasingly popular uh, field of research because, I mean, there's, of course, a good lot of money to be made from disrupting the meat industry. But there, I think, is a very strong will on the part of the people to cut back on meat consumption. We are learning more and more about how terrible it is for the planet. Um, and if we can get these meats growing in the lab, theoretically, it would be better for the planet. But the problem there is that these haven't been scaled up into you know, full-scale productions of lab-grown meat. So we don't know if it will actually be more energy-intensive or water-intensive. Probably not, but we still need much more research in that uh, that mode just to determine, is this actually going to be better for the planet? Matt Simon, science journalist at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. And thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media. 
at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.